You guys are no. being unwilling to entertain where your perception might have been if you did not know anything about this movie. And you were like, oh, it's a made-up world. We I enter on a train. I've never seen the, the train is, is the a train f- is a period. Yes, but you knew what it was about. And you see the train coming in to the world. I mean, they the way they're Which made it even more just, that I thought no, no, no. those people could be make-believe. Can you not cut people I did off think while Teddy they talk to make, you? Can you? I not, did think can, Teddy can, was real, though. We're going to work on just sharing the conversation. <laughs> Yeah, go ahead. Hi, to all you boys and girls out there in podcast land. Welcome to Radio Film School, a radio documentary anthology series about filmmaking, cinema, and the pursuit of passion. Every week, we bring you personal, passionate, and sometimes provocative stories from filmmakers and artists all over the globe. Stories that would help you mature as an artist and find more fulfillment in your craft and your career. Today, we're looking at audience reception and your ability as a filmmaker to convey to your audience the message that you want them to receive. A large chunk of today's show is actually an excerpt from a brand new podcast we just launched called Wrestling with Westworld. It's our first TV companion podcast. It's hosted by me, Radio Film School regulars JD and Yolanda Cochran, and their longtime friend, Adu Black. I should warn you up front that the excerpt we're playing from the podcast today contains discussions of a minor spoiler for the first episode of Westworld. It's not a major storyline spoiler or anything, and it's something that happens relatively early in the episode of the show, but it's a pretty cool reveal. So if you haven't yet watched episode one of Westworld, and you plan to, keep that in mind. Remember, if you like what we're doing here in the podcast, please leave us a rating and a review in iTunes or whichever podcatcher you use. I would really appreciate it. With that, let's get on with the show. HBO has garnered a reputation for creating some of the most gripping, engaging, thrilling, and entertaining original television shows in the history of the medium. Shows like The Sopranos, Sex and the City, Veep, Silicon Valley, and of course, Game of Thrones. Their latest foray into original programming has all the internet abuzz, and it's a show HBO hopes will be the successor to Game of Thrones as the nation's must-watch, most talked about, and most illegally downloaded cinematic Sunday night pleasure. Well, they probably don't want to illegally download it, but you get what I mean. I've always been interested in having a TV companion podcast, but as I mentioned at the end of last episode's bonus preview, the timing just never seemed right. This, however, seemed like just the right time to do it. I had co-hosts willing and able to join me in the discussion, we were still at the beginning of the TV series, and there are only 10 episodes in the show in a season, so it seems doable to add to my already crazy schedule. So literally within a week of coming up with the insane idea to start it, we had our first episode up. The name of the show, Wrestling with Westworld. Now, naturally as filmmakers, much of our analysis of the show comes from that perspective. We're analyzing and discussing things like dialogue, stories, cinematography, etc. And in our very first episode, we had a great discussion about audience reception that I wanted to share with my listeners of Radio Film School. 
How do you as a filmmaker communicate the message that you want to get across in a way that is interesting and engages the audience, as opposed to verbal exposition, which, unless you're Martin Scorsese, can be boring and not take full advantage of the medium? We're going to look at Westworld as well as Spike Lee's Do the Right Thing as two case studies. Be forewarned, the Spike Lee discussion has an excerpt from the film with a lot of profanity as well as racially charged epithets, if you get what I mean. My name is Ron Dawson, and this is Radio Film Schools, A Filmmaker's Journey. Your attention, please. We will soon be landing at Westworld, the ultimate resort. The original Westworld was released in 1973 and was both written and directed by Michael Crichton, who would later go on to pen Jurassic Park. Westworld was actually his directorial debut. It was a story about a highly advanced theme park where robots looked, sounded, and acted like humans. And for $1,000 a day, you could go there and live out your fantasies as a rough and rowdy cowboy in the old, old west. The fit then hits the proverbial shan when one of the cowboy robots, played by Yul Brynner, goes rogue and starts shooting up people in the park. Four decades later, in 2013, HBO began work on a modern retelling of Crichton's movie. The show is created by Jonathan Nolan, brother and frequent co-writer of famed director Christopher Nolan, Jonathan's wife Lisa Joy, and the mystery box man himself, J.J. Abrams. Just a side note, how freaking amazing is J.J. Abrams' career? Felicity, Alias, Lost, Fringe, Mission Impossible, he successfully rebooted both Star Trek and Star Wars, and now this. I want a theme park where you can go and pretend to be JJ for a week. Anywho, the modern retelling of Westworld takes some of the original themes of the first movie and expands on them. Themes of humanity and the nature of good and evil. As of this recording, there are five episodes in and it's a really terrific show. As I mentioned up top, in our discussion of the first episode of Westworld, Yolanda brought up a topic that I think is of utmost importance to every filmmaker. I'm going to play for you that discussion we had. As I mentioned earlier, there's a minor spoiler that we address. It's not like giving away the end of The Sixth Sense or anything like that. And actually, Entertainment Weekly actually gave this spoiler away in one of their articles before the show even aired. It involves the identity of two of the characters, and it's revealed relatively early in the show. But we can't have this discussion without talking about it. So if you want, you can skip ahead about 9 or 10 minutes. Now, for the sake of those of you who are coming in new to the show, as a quick reminder, Yolanda was executive VP of physical production at Alcon Entertainment, where she worked for about a dozen years and oversaw the production of untold number of movies, including The Blind Side and Book of Eli. JD is an indie filmmaker and a screenwriter and a former actor. So this topic of audience reception is one they each have dealt with in each of their 20 plus years of working in the biz. Okay, here's our discussion. Up to that point, I'm thinking, I think we're led to, we're supposed to think that Ed Harris is a robot and that James Marge and Teddy is real. And then we find out at that point that it's reversed, that Ed Harris is the guy who's real and mm-hmm. Teddy is not real. Um, and then I love that line. I made a note where Ed Harris says, after he kills Teddy, um, I guess you weren't the man you thought you were, which I thought was so cool because obviously... I did like that line. Because obviously he's... It was commentary, yeah. It was commentary. I did like it. I liked it for the reason I believe it's intended, the meaning that it's intended to convey. However, I think this is super interesting because Mm -hmm. it very much speaks to 
audience reception and it's a, it's a audience reception is, um, a conversation I've had many times over the course of producing movies based upon what it is that you've put on screen and the very deliberate choices you've made versus the audience members and what they're bringing into the theater or, or sitting down and watching TV right. and how they are going to receive what you've put on in the decisions. You, now, so specifically to this scene as a filmmaker, you need to be cognizant or thinking about, and I don't know if they made deliberate choices knowing that those people who are familiar with the original work, um, might make the opposite assumptions, Mm -hmm. but you also as a filmmaker need to make deliberate choices for those audience members who have no knowledge of, and and, and that's, that's a consideration that people have to take into account. Like when they're making sequels to movies and da, 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 da. It's like, I had, I had no expectation about Ed Harris's character because I was wholly ignorant about the original work. So my my original thought when he walked in was that he was not a host. I did, however, think that um, that Teddy was real. So that did surprise me. And I liked and that's why I liked the line. You aren't the man you thought you were. Right. Right. So, I would say I would, I would I would totally yeah. uh, I agree 100 percent with you, Ron, and disagree with Yolanda. I didn't have that. I shouldn't. I say I disagree, but I did not have her reaction. Me because he Teddy Kent comes in on the train. It, right. it makes it seem like he's an outsider. We see him coming yes, into the world, and then Ed Harris is already there. We don't see him coming in. So you. So my natural assumption, and then also. So even if I didn't know the story, so everybody who didn't come in on the train that we saw is naturally a host. Is no. that what I said? Is well, that what, what I said? That's like no, that's no. That's but what I'm, assumption. but what I'm saying, but what I'm saying is that you just said he was already there. Okay, so. but how many people that are host come in on the train, or that that right. aren't there in the town? That's my point. Right. It's right. like everybody that's in the t- everybody that's most of the. My assumption the mass, was anybody the, on the train or in the town could be I, we all understand, be a host. Right. We all yeah, understand but, but, that. But why but would what, you have that? What I'm saying, yeah, but why would you just, episode? I mean, because, I'm just saying. Because I don't know anything about the stuff, and I know it's about a make My assumption was, okay, this is a made-up world. So when we open on the train, me being ignorant of the first work, when we open on the train, I'm thinking the train is make-believe. Yeah, but it's a common trope. So the people on the train could be make-believe. Yeah, but... I would say it's a common trope in movies that, I mean, you know the premise of the movie is that people come to this world for... Right. You no, know, you, you guys didn't know that are premise. not... You didn't know that that premise. You didn't know 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 that premise. You didn't Okay, I I agree with JD. I think the train is like the seaplane from Fantasy Island. Like this is how you you saw it. No, no, no. No, because you you guys are getting lost. You guys are being unwilling to entertain (laughs) where your perception might have been if you did not know anything about this movie, and you were like, "Oh, it's a made-up world." We enter on a train. I've never seen the train. Is is. As the train a, is a period, yes, but you knew what it was about. I didn't know what it was but about. Vaguely from a blurb Listen, a, I'm looking uh, at a train. From that, a TV guide paragraph. I'm looking, at a, tra- <laughs> right. I'm looking at a train. And a poster. Like, what am I like? But still, the, the, I'm looking at a train that's obviously, it's a period. It's it, it's a period. The train is period. So and you, people are, t- and so people you, are talking. 
I don't know. The train looks, the train to me looked like it was also could be make believe. Okay. Like, I don't know when, I don't know when the real world and the make believe world. But I would say this. I would say this, though. There was a very fantasy island esque type vibe uh, to it. Vibe to it where the people are actually looking at down on the world on that big 3D mock up that they have, that big table. And you see the train coming in to the world. I mean, they the way they're which made it even more just, that I thought no, no. those people could be make believe. Can you not cut people I did off think while Teddy they talk was to make, you? Can you I not, did think can you, Teddy can, was real though. We got, we're going to work on just sharing the conversation. <laughs> yeah, go ahead. I, did, so, did we mention that you guys are married? Up at, no, at we didn't. <laughs> yeah. They probably figured that Present, out. By presently, now. we're married. <laughs> right. um, yes, at this moment, yes. we're married. By the end of the season, who knows? Yeah. Um, anyway, go ahead. But no, I'm just saying like she was commenting on how she was kind of lost or didn't get it. But for me, I felt that the filmmakers did all the right cues. I think without beating you over the head of uh, of what was going on, they gave you enough. And, um, you know, where you see the train coming in, they're staring at everything. They're monitoring what's going on. And then you come into this town. And for me, with the very little knowledge I had about this project, I got a sense that Teddy – was uh, the way they presented it is that he was a tourist, right? A guest coming into this town, and and Yana got that as well. Yes. Um, and I then totally and and then for the fact that this guy who seems uh, uh Ed Harris's character who's <clears throat> who's all over this place and runner, you know, going to all the, you know, he's showing up, uh, you know. No, I'm talking about the okay, moment we that's, saw him. That would be called the cutoff. I'm talking about I'm the saying, very moment we first see him. Right, when screen. he shows up to the farm yes. at night. Yes. He just did. Well, here's the thing. Here's the another thing I'll say. Is that the did. first time we see him? Yes. I believe so, yeah. Okay. The, he but walks out from behind the tree. Here's another Here's another uh, great aspect I think the filmmakers took. When, you, when Teddy comes into the town, he almost has this bewilderment about him. He comes mm-hmm. in, he sees this beautiful girl, and it's like the first time he's ever seen her. Right. Of course, later we realize that this is a repeating cycle or whatever, but yeah, for, him, for him, it, he could be a tourist. You know, that's why it sells us as a tourist. Yeah. But then when we see Ed Harris's character, it's like this guy has intimate knowledge. It's like he's got he's got the house staked out. He knows the patterns of these people. I mean, you just get a sense from his, the, his, from his actions and dialogue that he knows this world really well, right. which I'm not saying doesn't preclude him from being a tourist. But what I am saying is that that also furthers leading you down the road in the first episode of thinking that, oh, this guy is an android. He's not a – he's a host. He's not a tourist. Right, right. So, I, I mean, I read that hook, line, and sinker, and then – which made that scene so interesting. It's like, oh, shit, what's going on here? You I th- know, like- and I, th- I think the other thing that the filmmakers do to, to, to tip a hat to the fact that Teddy's probably – a person and not a host is when Tandy Newton's character Maeve approaches him. You have that sense of, okay, you know, she's one of the, she's one of the robots that's supposed to, you know, service the tourist and he spurns her. But, um, so for me, it was a head trip when we, the reveal, when we find out that Teddy's actually a host and Uh, right. True. Totally. And especially like you said, Ron, like, Ed Harris is dressed all in black, looks like the Yul Brenner character. So I was, you know, and in the original, that guy was the android. And he right. was that, you know, he was the, the you know. But I, and also when we get into philosophical, that that brings up another very interesting point, I think, about the show. And, a, yeah. and on a different tack that they take with it. Yeah, yeah. 
So, how does one go about communicating his or her message or making the audience think what they want? Well, based on our discussion here, there are a few things you can glean. First, having an understanding of common tropes and using them to steer the audience in the direction that you want. In this case, the idea of coming into the town on a train or the look of bewilderment on the James Marsden character Teddy, indicating to us that he may be a tourist. Second, taking advantage of common knowledge of iconic imagery, literature, cinema, or other elements in the popular zeitgeist. Here we had Yul Brenner's role as the road robot from the original Westworld movie. Third, playing on the audience's understanding of human nature. Are there particular ways you would expect someone to naturally act in a certain situation? Now, unfortunately, it's not always that simple. Sometimes you're dealing with a more nuanced situation. One where maybe there could be two or more legitimate ways of interpreting the story. Spike Lee's 1989 film, Do the Right Thing, is largely regarded as his singular, most important and remarkable film. It's on many critics and film historian lists as one of the top 100 films of all time. It tells the story of a day in the life of a Brooklyn neighborhood on the hottest day of the year. As the day progresses, we see and hear interactions of African Americans, Latinos, Koreans, Italians, cops, kids, grandpappies, and grandmommies, the whole nine yards. Undoubtedly, the most charged scene in the movie is a riot that happens at the end. I remember the minor hysteria caused in the media during the time when the movie was released, with people fearing that the movie would elicit real race riots in theaters. At the center of this heated scene are Sal, played by Danny Aiello, Buggin' Out, played by young Giancarlo Esposito, of Breaking Bad fame, and Radio Raheem, played by Bill Nunn. The original inciting incident for the film happened earlier when Buggin' Out started campaigning the neighborhood to boycott Sal's famous pizzeria, where much of the action in the film takes place. Because, as Buggin' Out put it, he wanted to see some more brothers up on the wall. Hey, hey, Sal, how come you got no brothers up on the wall here? You want brothers on the wall? Get your own place. You can do what you want to do. You can put your brothers and uncles and nieces and nephews, your stepfather, stepmother, whoever you want. You see? But this is my pizzeria. American Italians on the wall only. Yeah, that might be fine, Sal, but uh, you, you own this. Rarely do I see any American Italians eating in here. All I see is black folks. So since we spend much money here, we do have some set. Look, you want to get your friend out of here? Well, are you going to kick me out now? Are you, you going to kick me out, huh? No, I'm not kicking you out. You're kicking yourself out. What? Look, we want some brothers up on the wall, you know? Malcolm X, Nelson Mandela, you know, you know Michael Jordan, tomorrow. Come on, get, get him out, all right? I'm trying to get him out. Boycott Styles. Go! Yo, boycott Styles. I got your boycott swing. Boycott Styles. Yo, what you laughing at? Later on in the film, Sal has a heartfelt talk with his son, Pino, who happens to be a racist and played by John Tutura. A scene which shows a compassionate side of Sal that shows his affection for the people in that neighborhood. And I just love the underlying jazz score done by Spike Lee's dad, Bill Lee. Can we sell this and open up a new one in our own neighborhood? There's too many pizzerias already there. Maybe, maybe we, could, we could try something different. Well, what am I going to do? What do I, that's all I know. What am I doing? I've been here 25 years. Where am I going? I'm sick of niggas. It's like I come to work. It's Planet of the Apes. I don't like being around them. The animals. 
Why you got so much anger in you? Why are they like? My friends, they laugh at me. I never had no trouble with these people. I sat in this one day. I watched these little kids get old. And I seen the old people get older. Yeah, sure, some of them don't like us, but most of them do. I mean, for Christ's sake, Pino, they grew up on my food. On my food. And I'm very proud of that. This and other scenes in the film where we see Sal interact with other African Americans establishes him as a man who seems to generally care for the predominantly black patrons that he has. But the heat ultimately plays its toll and the situation comes to a head when right before closing, Bugginow and Radio Rahim enter the pizzeria blasting public enemies fight the power and yelling at Sal to get some more brothers up on that wall. And there is where we pick up a conversation I had with JD last year. One I've never yet aired on the podcast. Here's a scene and then our conversation. And remember, bad words, racial epithets, be warned. Here you go. I don't think that Sal is necessarily a racist. No, neither do I. But Spike does. There's an article um, that I, that I, I don't know, I, I came across. Spike was talking about how he thought Sal was a racist. And, and that really shocked me because I didn't think that Sal was a racist. Like, I, you got to be careful with the word racist because, like, sure. to me, it's like, what is race? I mean, people have a hard time even defining race technically. And the the thing is, is like when you talk, when you start just hurling, oh, you're a racist. I think everybody's prejudiced. I mean, I see it in every culture, every community. Black culture is, you know, light skinned blacks are prejudiced against dark skinned blacks. Same with Indian culture. You know, everybody has their biases against everybody. In terms of Sal, he just, I think he just lost it. And you know, the prejudices that he harbored, you know, because you know, came out against Radio Rahim because he's in there with the, you know, a big ass, you know you know, boombox, you know, turning up the music right. and not, not listening to Sal. And that's, you know, Sal's worked his life trying to build this, you know, pizzeria. You know, and they bring up the whole concept, why ain't you got no brothers on the wall? <laughs> you know, it's like, well, I mean, he that was his choice not to. I mean, you don't right. have to eat pizza there, you know. It's <laughs> right. like, especially, come on, you tell me that's the only pizza joint in, in New York? It's like you go somewhere else to get pizza if you don't like it. Let's say if Spike's message was... To communicate that Sal is a racist, but 95% of the people don't don't see it that way. You know, of a storyteller or a filmmaker who's trying to communicate a message, and and the message that people get isn't what the filmmaker intended. Um, yeah, uh, I, is, I is, is, it, is it their fault for not doing it well, or is it the audience's fault for being stupid? Or, or yes. What? Yes and yes. <laughs> and again, Spike, you know, it's not coincidental that he put it in the hottest day in the summer, you know, and it, every, you know, the tensions are just ready to explode because, you know, just people are irritable, they're hot, you know, uh, it, you know, all those prejudice, prejudices are just boiling at the, at the, at the, you know, right under the surface. And not just for Sal, but for everybody, the Puerto Ricans versus the black people, you know, everybody got their little, you know, you know, uh, biases, you know, in the community. I think you kind of see that. And my question kind of goes to, you know, about whether or not Spike did a good job. 
kind of goes to the idea of you know of the filmmaker's job to communicate his message to like to the audience and where you know once it's out there however the audience interprets it is how they interpret it and you know they're yeah. kind of it's kind of either in hand you know i just i re- you know as of the recording with you i just did an interview with uh filmmaker filmmaker by the name of ryan booth really talented filmmaker and you know he was saying that I kind of feel like um, on on a macro level, it's it's the same discussion when people say like, "What is art?" I don't know if the person making the thing is qualified to be able to call what they made art. Um, oh, in the sense, in the sense that I feel like the audience is the one who de- de- determines whether or not it's art, um, and uh, the person who's making it. What they have to be faithful to is the process, not the product. The product is is largely up to the audience, and it, you know, and that's a loose idea. But I feel like style fits in that category a little bit. Meaning, I feel like in retrospect, my, the style, like your your personal style, comes to this to the surface. But in the moment, I don't think you can decide like, oh, this is like. I'm going to shoot it in this way because that's my style. I, I just feel like you have to be present and honest and involved in the process. And out of that process, the product looks like you made it. First of all, I don't think someone's interpretation makes it art. I think that when the artist creates, he's creating art. You know, so like if you're a filmmaker, to you, it's art. You might put something out there that nobody gets, and they think it's crap or whatever. But if you like it, and it's your thing. It's art. I mean, that. I mean, to me, that would be the definition. I don't. I don't know necessarily that the the, the audience should dictate what art is. I mean, if you're an artist, you you know, like in other words, if you paint and nobody gets it or whatever, you might be a struggling artist and nobody gets your work. But I mean, to me, it's art. I mean, it's your art. I can understand that. And I might think it sucks or I might not get it or whatever. But I mean, who am I? You know, who am I? I mean, it all boils down to the artist himself. When talking about what messages a filmmaker is trying to communicate to his or her audience, there are so many factors, not the least of which the intention of the artist herself to make the message clear or to purposefully make it obscure. Are you making a promotional film for a corporation and you absolutely need to ensure the marketing message is conveyed in a way that is undeniable? Or are you a Nolan brother writing a twisty, turvy, sci-fi, mind-bending drama you want the whole world to be debating about? In some cases, the answer to that question will be based on pragmatic needs and concerns and whether you're dealing with fiction or nonfiction. Yet in other cases, it will be purely an artistic and subjective consideration with no objective right or wrong. Whichever way you go, it's important that you use all of your experience, skills, and resources at your disposal to ensure you get across exactly what you intend. Stay tuned after the credits to find out how you can join in our Westworld discussion. You got a gun, Polity? Or will you use mine? I'm a straight shooter, never lose a gun, so answer scope. 
Radio Film School is a production of Dare Dreamer FM. This episode was written and produced by me. Chris Huslidge is our co-producer. Radio Film School is a proud member of the Podcastica Network, a small collection of pop culture podcasts that cover topics from your favorite television shows like The Walking Dead to meditation and health to podcast production. Thus, and other great shows can be found at podcastica.com, a cornucopia of podcasty goodness. Music for this episode was curated from freemusicarchive.org. Links to tracks are in the show notes. Now, Free Music Archive is a great source for finding original sounding music that is Creative Commons free, but they don't have the best search features for being able to find particular types of music. It's very basic. So on our music channel, we've curated quite a collection of tunes that range the gamut. And for the most part, each entry is themed. Just hop on over to daredreamer.fm slash music. I often start there myself when picking songs for each of the Radio Film School episodes. Please give us a rating on iTunes, Stitcher, or whichever podcatcher that you use. But even if you don't use iTunes to listen to the show, it would be a huge boost for us if you'd still open up iTunes and give us a rating and review there. And definitely be sure to subscribe to the podcast while you're there. iTunes and other podcast apps don't always update their respective podcast storefronts right away. But if you subscribe, you will immediately get the next episode as soon as it's ready. You got a gun for living? Or will you use mine? Another great way you can support the show is by becoming a daredreamer.fm premium member. Premium membership helps keep the show going and putting out great weekly content. For just a few bucks a month, you not only support the show, but you get access to ebooks, templates, bonus episodes, discounts and other products and services, and other resources to help you grow in your craft and career. Just go to daredreamer.fm join to learn more. You can follow me on Twitter at daredreamer.fm and you can follow the show at Radio Film School. If you like this episode, share it on Twitter and email it to a friend. That's it for this week. Remember, if the story sucks, I don't care what you shot it with or cut it on. And that's the double truth, Root. Hey, if you're a fan of HBO's Westworld, uh, I want to invite you to check out the podcast. You know, we've had a little clip here, so you had a little bit of a flavor of what it's like. But uh, come on over to daredreamer.fm slash westworldpod and listen to some full-blown episodes. They're pretty funny, and uh, I think you'll enjoy it. Great insight into the show, not only from a filmmaker point of view, but just from a storytelling and a fan of the show point of view. Uh, We approach it from uh, kind of an ethnic African-American point of view in terms of how we discuss it, what we discuss. I kind of like to describe it as the uh, Westworld podcast that Samuel Jackson would love. So you think about some of the characters he plays, that's kind of like the tone of the show. And uh, considering that JD's on the show, keep in mind there's going to be a lot of profanity. <laughs> and uh, uh, it's definitely an e-explicit show. So it's not the kind of thing you're going to want to have playing when little ears are around. But it's a ton of fun. Uh, pretty funny. And... Uh, you can join us by either obviously listening to the show, but if you have any fan theories that you want to share, you can shoot us an email at westworldpod at daredreamer.fm. And you can subscribe to the show directly in iTunes by going to bit.ly, B-I-T dot L-Y slash www iTunes. That's www as in wrestling with westworld dash iTunes. And uh, hop on over, subscribe, listen to, we have five episodes in the feed right now as of this recording again all a ton of fun 
and I think you'll really enjoy the show. So come on over and join the discussion. We'll also have a link to the podcast in uh, this week's blog post for uh, this episode. Be sure to tune in next week, or maybe the week after, as we are going to have the next installment in our Superheroes in Cinema series, that to coincide with the release of Marvel's Doctor Strange. And uh, of course, our Breaking the Glass series is still going on, and we have some great topics. Last episode, we had some great insight from Chris Fenwick of FCPX Grill, talking about uh, the metaphor of standing on a chair to get yourself known. And we have coming up a part two to that with a response, a very funny yet poignant and insightful response from my buddy JD with regard to some of the things that Chris said. So look for those episodes in the feed uh, currently and uh, talk to you soon. You're listening to Dare Dreamer FM, the sound of creative expression. Hmm? Ah! Oh. Podcast to go.